0: Our scripture reading tonight is from the Psalms, chapter 51, Psalm 51. Let's hear the word of God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. May God bless the reading of His Word. Our text tonight is from Psalm 51, but we'll be looking at a more topical presentation of the doctrine of true conversion as found in Lord's Day 33. I'll read verses 10 through 13 of Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 88 to 91. Of how many parts does the true conversion of man consist of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man? What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It's a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of Men, Well, I hope I don't have to tell you tonight that this is an amazing Lord's Day. Very, very rich and deserves to be looked at almost word for word because everything is so grounded in Scripture and it brings together hundreds of texts in this wonderful, topical presentation of what do we mean by true conversion. Notice that our instructor talks about Not just conversion. True conversion. Because there can be so many false conversions. So that's our theme tonight. What is true conversion? What is that one thing needful? The one thing that you must have. You must be converted. Your life is empty. Your life is futile. Your life is headed for destruction and everlasting damnation if you are not truly converted. So this is a subject, boys and girls, that you need to hear. You young people, adults, every one of us must be truly converted. You can hardly get a more important subject for every single person in this audience tonight. So our theme What is true conversion? We want to look first at its comprehensiveness. Then we'll look at its sorrow, then its joy, and then its fruits. Comprehensiveness, sorrow, joy, fruits. So Lord's Day 33 doesn't just happen to be there. Last week, we heard that in Lord's Day 32, that since we have become miserable outside of Christ, and since we have found our life entirely in Christ, if we're true Christians, we will still do good works, and we must do them, and that those good works themselves is the fruit of being born again, those good works themselves will manifest a desire in our hearts to win our neighbors to Christ and our very life, the very fruits and marks of grace in us through those good works will reveal that we are children of God so we'll gain assurance of faith through it. So we saw that this new life that is work through knowing your misery and then knowing Christ as deliverer will have vast consequences. You, you're made a new creation. You will love the things that God loves, you will hate the things that God hates. At the same time, this Lord's Day, 32, was the beginning, as we heard of the last section of the catechism, 21 Lord's Days on how to live the Christian life. See how practical the catechism is. Taking all of the Bible's teaching and bringing it to bear of how to be a Christian. Mostly through expounding the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. But before our instructor jumps into that, he wants to enlarge upon Lord's Day 32 a little bit. What is this life of good works? This life of true conversion? It's important we get this right. So he spends a, a whole another Lord's Day uh, fleshing this out, asking what really is true conversion all about? It's not a theoretical exposition. It's a practical exposition. And the first thing he wants to teach us is that true conversion is something comprehensive. <clears throat> there's no area of your life, there's no area of your life that is untouched by true conversion. Boys and girls, if you could take a, an apple pie and you could cut it in 12 pieces, and then you say, well, each one of these pieces is a part of my life. One part is my friendships, one part is my uh, my leisure time, one part is my... church attendance on Sunday. One part is my going to school. One part is uh, working for my mom and dad. One part is um, my hobbies. Every single part of your life if you're truly converted will be profoundly impacted because you want to live all of life to the glory of God. You want to live all of life with a hatred for sin, question 89, and a love for God in Jesus Christ, question 90. So all of life is involved in this question, this wonderful topic. What is true conversion? And so our instructor asks us tonight, how many parts are there in true conversion? The true conversion, notice he says, of man. He means talking about everyone. When he uses the word man, the old fashioned way of using the word man wasn't that you just mean men and not women. It means everyone, boys and girls, young people, men and women. Man as we are created in Adam. This conversion is important for every one of us. Why? Because sin has impacted every one of us. Sin is universal. David says in this Psalm, I've been conceived in sin. My mother brought me out into this world in sin. I came into this world stained with original sin. And I commit actual sins every day. I need to be born again. I need a life of conversion. You see, because sin is universal. The requirement to repent is universal. The requirement to believe in Christ alone for salvation is universal. We must over and over and over again, throughout our entire lives, repent of our egoism, Of our carnal desires, of our self-indication, of our negligence. Yes, even of our best works, of our selfish prayers, of our humdrum ways, of our lukewarmness in things sacred. Of our wrongly presented sacrifices to God. There's so much to repent over. Actually, conversion consists of repentance. That's connected with the sorrow of question 89. And faith, that's connected with the joy in Christ because faith has one object, Jesus. Question 90. So if you had to define conversion, you really have to bring these two concepts together, don't you? And that's what our instructor does so well here. It's, it's a heart, change, sincere sorrow of heart, and sincere joy of heart. Notice the heart is in both of them. We're not talking now about just things that go on in your mind. We're talking about something that penetrates comprehensively your entire being. Every human life must be converted. So God calls us to repentance and to faith. So conversion is like a coin. One side of the coin is repentance. The other side of the coin is faith. Faith. If you're going to be converted, you're going to be turned around. Conversion means to be turned around. By nature, by nature, we're walking with our backs to God, aren't we? We're walking away from God. When you get born again, we call that regeneration, God stops you and He turns you around. And then your life of conversion begins and you live a converted life changed life turned around life now going toward God repenting before God believing in God living to God thinking God's thoughts after him now in Coram deo, the face of God living in the face of God becomes real and you see then you have to do with God and, and, and then you hate sin because you sin against God. And then you, you love God because, well, of what he's given in Christ. But everything is toward God. There's a radical change in your whole way of life. So, that's number one. Every human life, every human life must be changed from selfish living To God-centered living. Number two, the whole of human life must be changed. Every piece of that pie, every aspect of your life must be changed. Not just your outward activities, but your inner disposition. That's what happens when you get saved. You want to live your entire life to the Lord. So everything changes. let me just mention quickly five things. First, you you change intellectually. There's an intellectual change. You think differently. There's a turning of your mind. You begin to think Godward. Your mind was once set in fleshly ways, hostile to God. But now you no longer view Christ or other people according to the flesh. Now you hate sin. Now you see the beauty of holiness. Now you... Long to apprehend ever more fully the mercy of God in Christ. Your mind wants to center on God. You want to mind heavenly things. And you hate. You hate it when your mind goes in the direction of worldly things. And the lust of the flesh. You have an intellectual change. The things you used to hate you love. The things you used to love you hate. You also have an emotional change. A change in your affections when you're truly converted. Before conversion, well, Job says, man drinketh iniquity like water. But after you're converted, Ezekiel says, your sins make you ashamed. Thomas Watson the Puritan said it so well, heaven is never longed for until sin be loathed and hated. Heaven is never longed for until sin be loathed and hated. You see, repentance changes your affections. You hate sin. You love God. Faith changes your affections. Christ is now your object of desire. And so in conversion, as one old Puritan said, there is a sweet dying, dying to your former self, and there's an affectionate, Sorrow, an affectionate sorrow over ongoing sin. And there's a radiant joy, a joy that you're saved by the sheer astonishing grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, intellectual change, emotional change. And then there's what theologians call volitional, volitional change. That simply means a change in your will. A change in your will. What you want to do. What is first in in your will. You see, when you are changed in your will, you want to will the things of God. You want to will the things of God. And you're troubled when you don't. You're troubled when you see inconsistencies. Hence, this sorrow and this joy. Volitional change. And God commands that volitional change, doesn't He? God works it in His people, but He also commands them to exercise it. He works in His people to will and to do His good pleasure, to obey Him. At the same time, at the same time, He calls you to choose Him with your will. I've said before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Isaiah 56, choose the things that please me, verse 4 says. And by God's grace, you see, when you get a new heart, you're given the strength to choose the things of God. You want the things of God. There's There's a will change. And then fourthly, there's behavioral change. There's a turning of the behavior God said to Israel, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek justice, relieve the oppressed, give justice to the fatherless, plead for the widow. See, there's different priorities A behavioral change. Fitting for repentance. Fitting for the new life in Christ. We repent. We turn to God. We believe in His Son. We want to live to His honor and glory. Jesus put it all so simply. Every tree is known by its fruit. By its fruit. Your wife, your husband, your children, your parents. They can't help but notice the change. We had a wonderful visit with a family last week in our home. And they said the whole, the home, the whole home has changed now that the parents are, are converted. They've been converted recently. And uh, the whole behavioral fruit of their lives is is different. And the son said to us, there's peace in the home. There's a peace that wasn't there before. That's the result of an intellectual change and a a volitional change and an emotional change and a behavioral change. And then... There's also, fifthly, uh, a heart change. A heart change. The heart is impacted. And uh, I remember when I was 14 years old and came to my friends and was under, I was under severe conviction of sin and I, I, I told them, I, I can't, I just, sorry, I just can't be your friends until I find God. I need to find God. And then when I did find God, I told my former friends, I said, I found God, and you need to find Him too, and there's there's no joy like this joy. And my, My very best friend, he looked at me, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I don't know you anymore. You're like a totally different person. I wish I would have said, yes, I'm a whole new creation, but my theology wasn't quite up to speed at that point. And I just said, yeah, I, like, I, I'm different. I know I'm different. I, my whole life has changed. My whole life has changed. Now, sometimes in conversion, God has a lot of variety in conversion, sometimes that change is gradual, very gradual. Sometimes it's more sudden, like, like in my case. But the important thing you see is that it penetrates the heart. As well as the intellect and the behavior. Yes, that's all important. But the heart is all important. The heart is your innermost disposition. Who you really are. Changed from the inside out. You see, that's what, that's what happens when you get converted. And so there's a turning. There's a turning from sin to a merciful God. There's a heartfelt confession of sin. Against the righteous God. That's what David is going through in Psalm 51, isn't it? It's not just, this isn't his first confession. This is a confession after he sinned against Bathsheba. But the entire life of God's people, the entire life of God's people, is a life of confession. The whole of the human life is impacted. So that includes the whole breadth of the human life. The whole breath of the human life. We we pray then for saving grace. We pray that everything I do and say and think, I want it to be to the glory of God. That's why David prayed. Here, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. I want everything to be purified. Purge me with hyssop. Cleanse me. And then I want to tell others. Verse 13. I will teach transgressors thy ways. Sinners shall be converted unto thee. You know, if you get truly converted, you know what one of the almost automatic fruits is? You say, oh, but now my spouse needs to be converted, or my my children, or my my grandchildren, or my friends, or people at work, and you begin to feel the burden for other souls. You want them to have what, what you have. That's the fruit of conversion. The whole breadth of your human life is impacted. How you you talk to other people is impacted. You want to find a way to talk about the Lord to them, because they too need to be saved. And so you have every human life, you have the whole of human life, the breadth of human life, lastly, the length of human life. You want to serve the Lord like this your whole life. If you get converted while you're initially converted, I should say, when you're five years old, you want to live the whole life of conversion. Your entire lifetime, till you're old, till you die. There's no turning around. There's no saying, well, I'm saved now and therefore I'm going to turn back to the world. No, no, that's not what you want to do. You want to serve the Lord You want to give the Lord your entire life fully for your entire life. You want to be like Caleb, to follow the Lord fully. That's what you are got to want with all your heart. So sometimes when we talk about this word conversion, we get it a little bit wrong. We say to each other, well, tell me when you were converted. And we talk about how we became a lost sinner before God and how we first found Christ. And then we stop. But you see, Lord's Day 33 is in the Catechism section on gratitude, how you live a lifestyle of conversion. So, regeneration is the moment that God stops us. That's the proper term for that. Conversion is when we're turned around and we begin to live, begin to live a lifestyle for the glory of God, hating sin, loving Christ, pursuing holiness. And you see, that lifestyle, that lifestyle has to last our entire life, our entire life. That's a mark of true conversion. It won't go away. It will just become stronger and stronger and stronger as long as you're not backsliding. The older you get, the more you want to live totally for the glory of God. So conversion is a lifelong thing. Now, I'm going to be technical here. Technically, is it a wise thing to say, I've been converted, as if the job is done, when we're all in process? What we really should be saying to each other, by the grace of God, I've been born again, if you're a true Christian, and I am in the process of being converted. And that process is impacting my life in a mega way. It impacts my whole life, but I've still got a long ways to go because I still battle indwelling sin. So, what we need to understand then, there are two parts in this conversion there's this sorrow and there's this joy. Sorrow in joy. And uh, let me let me just talk to you first a little bit about about the sorrow. This is this is a real this is a real sorrow. The old nature, before you were regenerated, the old nature didn't really sorrow over sin. Sin itself, you sorrowed over maybe the consequences of sin because you got caught or it brought you into trouble, or you had to pay a price because you sin, but when you get saved, you see, you get a battle going on in your soul because you have an old nature that still wants to regain lost ground, still wants to sin, and you've got the new nature who's at the, that, that's at the center of who you are, and that new nature wants to live righteously. So you get the battle of Romans 7, remember that? The good that I would, I find myself not doing. The evil that I would not do, I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am. So, there's a sorrow in the heart of a believer to the very end of his life. It's a sincere sorrow of heart. Because I want to to live perfectly for God. And I I, never make it. I'm always coming short. Our instructors say, Lord's Day 44, actually we have only a small beginning of this obedience that we, that we yearn to give to God. And so, that's discouraging, isn't it? I, I still have all this tendency to sin in me. And now I don't grieve mostly over the consequences of sin, but over sin itself, because sin offends my God. Sin is what drove my Savior to the cross. Sin, as I said in prayer, My sin is what crowned Him with thorns that put the spear into His side. Put the nails in His hands and feet. It's my sin. We shall look upon Him whom we have pierced, Zechariah 12.10 says, and grieve in sorrow over what we've done. So this is a heartfelt sorrow. It's not just a mere regret. It's not just a little bit of, well, I'm sorry, I've sinned. It goes deeper than that. It's I not only have sin. I am sinful. My heart by nature is prone to sin. I grieve over the very nature of my heart. My old nature. This is my sorrow. I grieve because I offend God. And it's all my guilt. This man, the thief on the cross says. Think talking about Jesus. This man has done nothing amiss. Nothing wrong. But we, fellow thief, we receive the due reward of our deeds as we're being nailed to death. Because we're sinners. Now, when you're a Christian and you've been forgiven and you rejoice with a kind of assurance of faith that you're a child of God, that doesn't mean... That you lose that consciousness that actually you deserve hell. By the grace of God, you escape hell. By the grace of God, you're not forsaken of God because Christ was forsaken of God for you. But it doesn't mean you hate sin less. It actually means you hate sin more. Because now you sin against the gospel when you sin. You sin against the love of God. You sin against the cross of Christ. You sin against a Father, a Son and a Holy Spirit of whom you say I don't know which one I love the most but I love them all. I sin against them. The three in one. And that gives you a very deep sorrow. Boys and girls, let me try this. I want you to understand this. This is very important. If If you did something bad to your dad or your mom, and you sinned against them, even if you didn't get caught, you'd feel bad, wouldn't you? Why? Because you love your dad. You love your mom. But now, let's say you're going down a highway. And let's say your dad was going a little bit too fast and didn't didn't really quite realize it too much. And a policeman pulled him over and gave him a ticket. Well, he, he did something wrong, didn't he? What would you think of your dad if he said, Oh, Mr. Policeman, I'm so, so sorry I've offended you. I know I deserve the ticket. And I know I deserve points taken off and I have to pay money, but my real grief is that I've sinned against you, Mr. Policeman. Do you expect your dad to say that? No. Why? Well, he doesn't have a real relationship with that policeman. So, it's when you know someone and you love someone and you sin against them, then, that's when you get really sad. And you see, if you're a Christian... You know God. You heard that this morning. You love God. And so when you sin against Him, it hurts. You feel sad. If you're married and you have a good marriage and you you do something that hurts your spouse, you just feel terrible, don't you? You just feel terrible. Because you love your wife. You love your husband. So all the lifetime of God's people, you see, The whole lifetime. Part of your new life is sorrow over sin against God. Listen to it. It's a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sin. Provoked God. That's the problem. That's the grief. So may I ask you, do you have that sorrow in your heart? Do you grieve? When you sin, because you sin against God. The God you love. The God who's never done any bad thing to you. The God who's always been better to you than you've been to Him. The God who's spared you and kept you alive when you deserve to die and go to hell. How can I sin against that good God? doesn't make any sense at all. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? True conversion produces sorrow for sin because I sin against God. But that's not all, our instructor says. It is a sincere sorrow of God, of heart, that we provoke God by our sins. And more and more, notice this, to hate... And flee from them. To hate and flee from them. Do you hate sin? Can you honestly say in the presence of God, Lord, I, I just wish that all sin in me were dead. I would give anything. I'd empty my bank account. I'd give everything I have. If only I would sin. I agree with John Owen when he said, Indwelling, remaining sin is the greatest burden a child, has to, a child of God has to carry with him throughout his life. Oh, to be free of sin. Oh, the attraction of heaven to be with Jesus forever. Yes, but also to be free from sin. Sin free in glory. Never sinning again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, a believer is one who hates sin. Sin is a monster. Sin is anti-God. Sin is dreadful. I hate it. I, I want to be totally intolerant of it. I loathe it. I want to banish it from my life. I want to put a sword through it. I want to live to the glory of God. Oh God. Thou knowest all things. I can't explain it because I still sin, but I do hate it. Thou knowest I hate it. Can you say that tonight? I hate sin. You know, I heard a story once from a minister who just passed away about a year ago, a very godly man in Scotland named Eric Alexander. He actually was the mentor of Sinclair Ferguson when Sinclair was young. And... Uh, He told this story. He said there was a boy and a father in a store. And the boy was seven years old. And he began to touch everything in the store, things that could break. And the father said, don't do that, my son. And the boy didn't listen. He touched more things. And the father said, stop it now. And then the boy reached out, took a thing, and he threw it on the ground. And everybody, everybody in the store went, and everybody stopped shopping, and everybody just stared at this boy. What a what a terrible thing this boy was doing. And then this boy did something. I hardly dare to say it, but it was far worse. He looked at his dad, and he said, you... G-E-T-L-O-S-T. You get lost, he said to his dad. It was just, people just shook their heads. The rebellion of this boy was overwhelming. And Reverend Eric Alexander said, he walked out of that store and he was just shaking his head saying, oh, what has society come to? What's this world come to? Such rebellion. And then suddenly he said, it was like the Holy Spirit said to him, but this is you. Every sin you commit is rebellion against God. And he said, little boy's name was Billy. He said, I became Billy before God. You see, when I turn from the way that my faithful creator and loving father has set for me to walk in, whenever I sin, I'm saying to God, move away. Move away. I want to live my own life. One Puritan put it this way. He said, with every sin I knowingly commit, while I commit it, I'm being a practical atheist. I'm saying God does not exist. How could you sin in the face of God who is very present right now in front of you? Every sin is crude and rude and irreverent and rebellious. Every sin is a departure from God. Every sin, says Leviticus 26, 27, is a walking contrary to God. Every sin, Nehemiah 9, verse 26, is an injury to God. Jeremiah 933 says, or 93 says, they proceed from evil to evil and know not me, saith the Lord. Every sin is an act of ingratitude against our creator and our maker, our savior and our Lord. Every sin is a filthy abomination in his sight. I hate it. God help me, save me, save me from my sin. Notice what the instructor says in true conversion. I more and more hate it. More and more hate it. And sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we stumble and we sin over some of the smallest things. And you can hardly believe it. Have you ever felt that way? I get it quite often. I say, look, I'm saved. I was saved. I was a teenager. You know, this is 50-some years later. Why aren't I far more holy than I am, still sinning over simple things. It's so sad, isn't it? It grieves us when God deserves so much better. But then, if you're truly converted, you don't only sorrow over sin, and you don't only hate sin because of God, but you flee from sin more and more. To hate and flee from sin. In other words, you go in the opposite direction. You don't get as cozy up to sin as close as you can be. You don't live a lifestyle of saying, can I do this that maybe seems a little risque, but it's still not sin? No, boys and girls, you say rather, if you're saved, how far can I stay away from sin? How far can I stay away from sin? I want to flee it. I want to run away in the opposite direction. And when we run away from sin, we run to God. And that's where we want to be. That's where we want to be. Well, so the first point then is the true comprehensiveness of conversion. Second point is sorrow. In true conversion, because of sin. And we'll look now at its joy and fruits. So, what is the quickening of the new man? It's a sincere joy, a joy of heart in God through Christ, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. If you're truly converted, you know deep sorrow, but you know even deeper joy. Even deeper joy. Both joy and sorrow are present in the life of the Christian to the end of his life. It's not so. It's not so. That the mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man are like two stages. You go through one, then you get to the other. No, they both go together. They both go together. In the Bible, you see this again and again, don't you? Like David here in Psalm 51 saints rejoice in God even as they sorrow over sin. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. I'll teach transgressors thy ways. Sinners will be converted. David is happy in this psalm. But he's also grieving over his sin. They come together. But the keynote in the Christian life, the keynote when you're repentant over sin, is you also joy in God by faith that goes even more deeply than your sorrow. Rejoice in the Lord. Again I say, says Paul, while he's in prison, rejoice. They will rejoice in thy name all the day. All the day, says the Old Testament. Now there can be much in our life that depresses us. It's not only sin, it's also circumstances in life that aren't rosy, that we have difficulties encountering. And we understand, all of us, even unconverted people, that this life is a veil of tears in many ways. We say a hearty amen to the words of Moses, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. But if you're a true Christian, you have everything in the Lord. You have salvation in Jesus Christ. You have a future that's going to be sin free. You have a joy of heart, deep in your heart, in God, through Christ. What God has done for you by Christ, the joy of salvation, as David calls it, has been given to you. And you are upheld by that free spirit, that Holy Spirit, that takes the things of Christ and reveals them to you. And so Christ, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the entrance into this incredible joy. Through Jesus, you can have God back again. Through Jesus, all that you undid in the first Adam has been undone for you if by grace you may repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation. Yes, you still grieve, but you know you're saved through the blood of Jesus. Your guilt is forgiven for the sake of Christ. My Father is His Father. He is mine, and I am His. I am His child. I am adopted into His family. The distresses of life may get me down at times, but all things shall work together for good. I have everything I need, everything I could hope for in the Lord Jesus Christ. So though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. I rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have everything in Him. Is that not reason for exuberant, even ecstatic, profound, deep joy? Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. In Christ, you see, you have everything. Because he is everything. It's not our life. That is the most important. It's not our freedom even that's the most important. It's not our prosperity that's the most important. It's God who's the most important. And if we have Him, we have the highest goal of life. If we have Him, we have the greatest wealth. If we have Him and His promises, well, then our joy is found in God Himself. Remember that quote I love to tell you? Over, I know I've said it ten times. Say it again. I know not which divine person I love the most, but this I know, said Rutherford. I love each of them, and I need them all. You see, if you love the Father, and you love the Son, and you love the Holy Spirit, and this three-in-one God is your greatest joy, you can say with Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. God Himself is my joy. Then, wow, you just want want your whole life to be a life of service to Him. You just want... The joy of knowing God just makes you want to live totally to Him. The joy of being able to experience His fellowship. The joy of feeling the comfort of His hand walking with you. The joy of seeking counsel from Him in your greatest difficulties. The joy of experiencing His power and support. The joy of forgiveness of all your sins, past and present, and yes, even future. This joy makes you say with Isaiah... Here am I. Send me. His commands are my pleasure and my song. I don't serve Him out of harsh slavery. I serve Him out of joy. A joy of heart in God through Christ. You see, true religion isn't just experiencing your misery. It is experiencing sorrow of sin. But the sorrow of sin is trumped by the joy in God through Christ. It's an insult to God, to the Father, a denial of Christ, and a grieving of the Holy Spirit when we just remain stuck in our own misery and we imagine to have found Christianity in just knowing our misery only. That's not what the Bible says. You can't read Paul's epistles and say, this is a miserable man. The life of true conversion is ultimately a life of profound joy in God through Christ. The Christian, the true Christian, who's not backsliding, is a happy man in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we repent daily of our joy, but we have delight And love in God. Because our life of joy in God. This part of conversion. Which is the major part. Produces within me a life of obedience. I want to obey Him. Look at what the rest of the answer says. With love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Don't just wipe that away. That's the definition of conversion, the biblical definition. You can look at all the proof texts under Lord's Day 33. Don't have time to give them all right now. But the life of conversion would be a dismal life without this joy in Christ. Then we would work, well, like people who don't know God and they're, they're in their secular job and they're looking at the clock and they they just always want Always want it to be five o'clock so they can go home. Or they say, "TGIF, thank God it's Friday. I can't wait to be done with work. Oh I, I just can't stand my work. I, can't, I live for the weekend. I live, live for shallow, worldly fun. What a miserable life that is. You want to be happy? Just a little bit with this world, two days a week, and the rest of your life is miserable? No, no. The Christian has seven days a week. He knows his sins are forgiven. He knows he's on his way to glory. He's got joy. The song of joy is not a laborious song. He's not like the elder parable, or the elder son rather, in the parable of the prodigal son, who never dared to be happy with his friends. Walking in a harness, as it were. Daring, not daring to go out into the world like his younger brother, but he would like, oh, so much to do that deep in his heart. But he's restrained by a legalistic repentance. When you're a Christian, that legalistic repentance becomes a gospel repentance. And it becomes a gospel love. And you love and delight to live in obedience to God. You say then with Paul, even though I grieve over sin, in Romans 7, even though I grieve over sin, I delight in the inner man. I delight in the inner man to do the law of God. Oh, how love I thy law. I shall keep thy law with zealous fervor, we sing in Psalter 4.28. Are you enjoying God? Do you enjoy Him? Purpose of life. Westminster Catechism, most famous confessional question ever written in all of human history. No question is more famous as this What's the chief end of man? That I may glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you enjoy God in the good and holy sense of the word, even as you sorrow over sin, then you know what one old Puritan said, we never better enjoy ourselves, we never better enjoy ourselves than when we most enjoy God. It's our privilege. It's our duty. If we're true believers, we ought to be radiating with joy. Usually the problem Is either that we're flirting with sin or that we're underestimating the privileges of salvation that are ours in Christ Jesus. The privileges of being the father's adopted children, the son's brothers and sisters, the spirit's residence for he indwells us. The privileges of being new creations and heirs of glory and co-heirs of Christ. Either that or we have just a skewed idea of who God is. And we're bound up by some kind of legalistic servitude. Joy. True joy in Christ. For the true Christian, who sorrows over sin, is the flag that ought to be flown from the citadel of the heart when the king is in residence. We ought to have joy in God even when we feel little joy from God. Because we have a relationship of salvation in God. Martin Luther said the Christian ought to be a living doxology of praise to his God. A living doxology of praise. The great church father Augustine said it even stronger. He said the Christian should be one hallelujah from head to foot. No wonder another Puritan said, Keep company with the more cheerful sort of the godly. There's no mirth like the mirth of believers. There's a profound joy in being a Christian. And if you're not saved, my dear friend, my dear unconverted friend, I say to you tonight, you are missing the world's greatest joy. When you find Jesus Christ, He becomes colorful. He becomes full of life. You find joy unspeakable. And the world will pale in significance. The world will become dull and gray and boring compared to Jesus Christ. There's as much difference between spiritual joys and earthly joys as between a delicious meal that is eaten and food that is painted on a billboard. You don't have real food when you live for this world. God's people enjoy a spiritual feast that you know nothing of, but you can know it. And you are invited to know it. Isaiah 55 Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth. And you do thirst, don't you? You do know this world's empty deep down, I think, I hope. Come ye to the waters, he that hath no money. Come ye, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness, even in the everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ, the head of the covenant. That's where you find joy unspeakable. Spiritual food in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's that joy that makes you want to go out and serve the Lord and live totally for Him in good works. And what are they? Question 91. Well, they proceed From true faith, that's number one, They performed according to the law of God, number two, and to His glory, number three. So, the fruits of the Christian life are a peculiar people, zealous of good works. From a true faith, that's the fountain, that's the fountain of our good works. Cain and Abel, they both made sacrifices to God. One did it out of faith, one did not. The one that did it out of faith was received, the one that didn't was not received. You see, anything that is not done by faith does not have the stamp of divine benediction. To the outward eye as a man, Cain and Abel were both doing their duty. But to the inward heart, God can see your inward heart. One was done out of faith. That's a requisite, a requirement of a good work without faith. Hebrews 11, 5 or 6. It is impossible to please God. Second, it has to be done according to the law of God. The spirituality of that law. The spirit of the law. Which is love God above all. Love your neighbor as yourself. If your works aren't done out of true love, they're not good works. And the third thing is it has to be done to God's glory. It has to be done to God's glory. If it's not done to God's glory, it's sin. Because we're put here in this world for one purpose, to glorify God. When we don't glorify God, we're sinning. No matter how good outwardly what we're doing looks like. So, I hope you understand now, as I close tonight, why conversion is absolutely necessary. You miss everything. You miss God. You miss salvation when you're not saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. My dear friend, if you're an unbeliever tonight, I invite you, I invite you to repent of your sin. And to believe in Christ alone for salvation. Remember. Remember. You can't be saved in any other way. Nothing you do. Could ever meet the demands of God. Only what Christ has already done. Can meet the demands of God. You've got to be in him. You've got to be in him. Paul said. In Acts 17. That on the judgment day. in the judgment day. You too will stand before God. And he says, God therefore calleth all men everywhere to repent, 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 repent. Repentance is necessary for you, but it's also necessary for you, dear believer. Lifelong, as we heard tonight, we must repent again and again of our vain thoughts, our evil lusts, our worldliness, our backslidings failing to use our talents for His glory, our ingratitude, our pride, our unbelief, a host of other sins. Every day, repent and believe in Christ, the two sides of conversion. Every day, sorrow that you're not sinless, and every day, rejoice in God. God commands us to repent. God's mercies ought to lead us to repentance. The evil of sin ought to drive us to repentance. The inevitability of death and eternity ought to drive us to repentance. The suffering of Christ should lure us into repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. Make your entire life a continuous exercise of repentance, and your entire life by the grace of God, a continuous exercise of joy in God through Christ and to live wholly unto Him out of His salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank Thee so much for this life of true conversion, which none of us could live of ourselves, but it's all Thy amazing grace. Lord, without Thee, without Thy Holy Spirit, We would never truly sorrow over sin. We would never truly rejoice in the gospel. We would always be standing on the outside looking in and never be able to appropriate gospel grace. Oh, we thank thee, Spirit of God for Thy saving work in Thy people in this place. For Lord, without Thy Holy Spirit, our whole life, our whole religion would just be a sham. So we We realize, Lord, that there's no credit due to us. It's all thy honor and glory. It's all thy free, sovereign grace salvation. And so we pray, pour out that grace of salvation upon every unconverted person in our midst tonight. Oh, God, graciously work. Revive us. Enliven us. Help us to exercise mortification, killing sin, and quicken us in the new man with joy in Christ. Help us to live wholly and solely to thee and to glorify thee with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.